Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS. With me for this special Books of the Year podcast is commissioning editor and feudal landlord Thea Lenarduzzi, whose seasonal wardrobe, I'm pleased to say, is back to being a homage to the late 90s MTV cartoon Daria. Thea, hello. 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 <laughs> you're not even going to respond I, I, you know, I just like to know that I put a bit of effort into these well, no, introductions but I just, I you know, just, they don't come from nowhere these mild jibes and I did just, just look say, down at myself and found that I had no idea what you were talking about oh. yesterday was stronger than Dar- Daria Link I think <laughs> Uh, before we go on, remember, if you want to subscribe to the TLS, which you should do, Google TLS subscriptions and type pod one in the offer code section. You can get six issues for six pounds. And please do review us on iTunes. We've had some lovely reviews so far. So thank you very much for that. Thea is a great show off. I wanted to read them out. But no, I no, overruled. no. I just I did. said you did. names. You s- I just said some names. You said read some them names. out. And the last couple, which are, which are uh, genuine. Uh, yes. Well, as opposed to... Well, I don't know, but sometimes think people think that you fake these things. They're real. <laughs> Not you, one, fakes them. But anyway, they're lovely. <laughs> I fake yeah, them, yeah, personally. Fake news, fake news. <laughs> um, but you, you wanted me to read the names out. Well, we'll do that next week, shall we? <laughs> Perhaps. Perhaps, OK. Coming up this week, yes, we get to pick over our contributors' books of the year. Always a wonderfully erudite and motley selection of titles and offer a few suggestions of our own. So, to Books of the Year, always a salutary and humbling experience at the TLS, a collection of books you've meant to read but haven't, or have never heard of in a way that makes you feel insufficiently intelligent. This year, for example, Stephen Brown flags Maria Bonita by Ignacio Martinez de Pison. Is that right, Thea, do you think? Sounds good. Yeah, P-I-S-O-N at the end. Yeah. Spanish, peace on. Anyway, it's a mammoth-like tale of lost innocence that's been translated from Spanish into Italian but not English. So one for Thea. And Diana Dark proposes Women Who Blow or Not by Eche Temel Kuran, a spirited defiance of female stereotypes and male patriarchy in the Middle East. Sudir Hazari Singh offers a book first published in 1823, Emmanuel de Lacasse's Memorial de Saint-Hélène. 
Which, Lucy Dallas, is the most influential Napoleonic memoir of all time, is it not? I think so. It's certainly among top the top three. three. Top, top three. three, but I'd say it probably is the first <laughs> Probably one. the yeah. first, yeah. yeah. And a mere two centuries since original publication, you say? Well, Clive Sinclair demands special pleading for selecting a Seamus Heaney translation of the Aeneid, which first appeared in 2016, since it was actually written over 2,000 years ago. I think we'll let him have that. Yeah, we, have, we did do. Uh, <laughs> it's striking that the books have more than one champion, so where more than one contributor has approved them, they seem to be loosely connected by their internationalism. John le Carré's new novel, A Legacy of Spies, featuring arch-remainer George Smiley, appears twice, as does The House of Government by Yuri Sleskin, which tells the story of the Moscow apartment complex opened in 1931 to house party brass and their families, thus becoming a stage for scenes of political and personal tragedy. It is like Solzhenitsyn with photographs, says Tom Stoppard. The most nominated novel is a translation of Boussole by Matthias Ennard, in which an insomniac Austrian musicologist spends a long night feverishly looking back on his researches into Orientalist music conducted in Vienna, Damascus and Tehran. It is perhaps no surprise that thoughts have also turned towards a continent this year. Raymond Tallis plumps for After Europe by the Bulgarian political scientist Ivan Krastev as a way of considering the Brexit vote's triumph, this is a quote, triumph of simple lies over complex truths, of mean-spiritedness even over self-interest. Meanwhile, John Kerrigan's views are conditioned by the thought that Brexit might not happen. Someone should tell Boris Johnson. So to wrestle with all of what this means, we're joined by a couple of podcast regulars. Everybody knows arts editor Lucy Dallas for lots of reasons. Her refusal to read the TLS, her indie pop stardom, her opera skills. But did you know, I did not until a couple of days ago, that she once had a regular gig performing at Euro Disney? Did you know that thing? I did know that. I withheld it from you, you for did. obvious reasons. The whole yeah. office dig was sworn to secrecy David until somebody this. let it out. It was out. David Horsball, the history editor. From you. Yeah. We've been keeping so were you Minnie Mouse? <laughs> no, can I pick you up on two things yes. here? The first is that we call it Disneyland Paris. Okay. <laughs> we in the business. See you, Disneyland do. Paris. Yeah, oh, yeah. You don't call it Euro Disney, it's Disneyland Paris. Thank you. Or Paris. Uh, and I, obviously I couldn't have been Minnie Mouse because I'm far too tall. Minnie Mouse is very, very no, they're short. Giant. They're giant, no, these, no, these, these no. people in costumes, no, aren't they? No, the big ones are. Yeah. But if you think about it from the kiddies' point of view, I'm, I'm gesticulating, we're on radio, I'm yeah. showing you how tall they are. <laughs> they're, they're, <laughs> Minnie and Mickey are very short. Oh. They're like five So foot, who did you dress up as? I would say. Hang on, hang on a minute. <laughs> and Pluto and Goofy yeah. are very, very tall, if you think about it, in the cartoons. Yeah. So you have to get very tall people to be Pluto and Goofy and co. Yeah. And you have to get very short people okay. to be Mickey and Minnie. And I wasn't any of them because I was singing, so you can't sing with a big mm. head on. This is like the behind the scenes at, at Euro Disney, which and you're not quite And good. my lawyers have advised me not to say anymore. Oh. So, uh, Were you, did, was it fun? It was a way of earning money when you were. It was. It was younger. a lot of fun, actually, and yeah, yeah and it was a regular gig, which for a musician for is frankly gold dust. Yeah. Anyway, I was really pleased to hear about it. I uh, bet you were. We're also joined by fiction <laughs> editor Toby Lichtig, who is the undisputed king of the literary junket. He's here too, back from the rigors of the Hay Festival in Peru, where he may or may not have drunk cocaine tea. I did not drink cocaine tea. I would have happily drunk cocaine tea, but I, I didn't find it. You suggested any. it might exist. Yeah, there. no, it does. It does. But is, it, it fa- is it legal? It's, it's, yeah, it's legal. You can, you can get it in some hotel rooms. Isn't it um, supposed to help with altitude it's sickness? It's meant to help with altitude yeah. sickness, yeah. I don't, yeah actual I, it, cocaine tea. Yeah, but I mean, I don't, I don't think there's much actual cocaine in it. It's cocaine. Right. I mean, it's not, you know, oh, it's, okay. it's not, it's not it's like, like a nice Coca-Cola. cup of tea and a, and a line on the side. Is it like, like Thai Red Bull has got amphetamines in? Uh, yes. 
in the and, same and way. in fact there is there's a drink called inca cola um there which i believe has some sort of kind of actual cocaine I mean, it's, it's basically well, I don't know, it's a sort of iron brew with a with a, with a bit of something but it, you know it doesn't, again just it doesn't, iron brew then <laughs> normal iron brew <laughs> doesn't really do Didn't much coke originally have coke in it is that an urban myth? I, I think it's an urban myth. Yeah. I, in fact, the last time I heard that was in the playground, so I can't corroborate <laughs> it. Which is where yeah. Stig gets all of his, <laughs> <laughs> all of his yeah. facts. That I do remember that story. That sounds oddly It familiar. was Stig who put the story about it. All right, all right, all right. Let's, let's actually talk about some books, shall we? Okay. Rather than just mock each other, which I think is completely <laughs> inappropriate, actually. Uh, what conclusions can we draw from this year's list? Anyone sort of take anything looking at it before we hear about... Enough we have a, a diverse pool of uh, contributors who, you know, have a wide range of interests. It's pretty internationalist, well, isn't it? Pretty international. They don't feel but constrained by time or country no. or. Well, Wales has done very well out of this. That's true. The Maganogi. Yeah. The Maganogi, yeah. yeah. as as translated by Matthew Francis, and then David Jones has done the biography That's of true. David Jones That's and Thomas Dilworth, well. and the two are linked, of course, as well because. Uh, David Jones was, especially in parenthesis, was very much inspired by the Maganogi. So. And actually that book was, we had a great review of it, and Mm. David Jones and people of that time, that sort of British modernism, Mm. they seem to be everywhere at the minute. Don't you think there's there's so many exhibitions are about British modernists in one form or another? Yeah, there's been a lot of interest in them, hasn't there? Particularly in David Jones, because I think he's quite elusive. Well, it's also sort of been a flurry of anniversary Mm. years in that respect, Mm. especially for the first World War poets, and he is probably best known still for In Parenthesis, which was published in... 1917, I think. No, 1936. Was but it was, it was set at 1917. It was on my page. Yes, she said. Yeah. Which I, hope you, I hope you did read that. I did read it. <laughs> of course I did. It was an, there was an excellent review of it by Paul Griffiths, who was also in the um, Books of the Year. And yeah, he reviewed the opera, which was at Welsh National Opera, I think. Yeah, there was a flurry of David Jones events mm. earlier in the year. Well, I think, yeah, yeah. It, it was a really good review as well, I, I think. Um, should we talk about Einar? novel Compass. Yeah, he's done very well out of our reviewers. Yeah. Every, uh, how many citations? Three Six or four. Or? It was basically yeah, the most, very the, many, the most yeah. cited yeah. book of the year. A glowing review as well. Yeah. 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 So last year, just so people remember, the most the, the most cited was The Letters of Samuel Beckett. Mm-hmm. And I think the second was Democracy, a biography. So it was a kind of a year of gloom and mm-hmm. the failings of democracy, which was oddly appropriate. But this year, it is this novel Compass by Ennard and tell us about it there is, yeah. it, you, is it right I yes I mean it's it's one of my books of the year as well yeah as you summarized it it, it is that it is um Franz the character the protagonist is Franz and he's uh, over one kind of feverish night recalling his his travels and his um involvement in uh, the in orient the orient in inverted commas um specifically how Middle Eastern music has been appropriated by Westerners, um, and so in fact, it's no surprise that Robert Irwin, in our summer, in our Christmas books of the year uh, roundup, has cited it as one of his books of the year as yeah. well. Because Robert Irwin wrote what was it called, Lust for Knowledge? Was that the book that he wrote? Which was all about it was a 2006. It was a study of uh, the early days of Orientalism, as in the scholars, the British, French, and and German especially, scholars who went over and um, and first began to study uh, Middle Eastern Arabic culture. Um, and so Enar comes at it as well from, from a similar viewpoint to Irwin, where they are reassessing um, Edward Said's famous study yeah. on orientalism so is, it, is, it, is it about colonialism though? Is it, saying... it, it is but it's also it's also a celebration of of the good that has come from our interest in 
in the East and, and the art okay. of the East. Uh, Michael Lapointe, he likens Einard to Sebald and he calls him one of the strangest and most dazzling writers working today. Toby, is, that, is, he, is he in your pages and when you look at fiction, foreign fiction, is he, is he looming large? Or he's he, looming very, yeah, he's looming very, very large. Were you large. surprised to see him? No, not at all. I mean, I, so many people are desperate to review that, but you can, you yeah. can often tell when sort of, sort of two or three months before a book comes out, suddenly reviewers start clamouring. <laughs> and that was definitely one of the ones where people were very, very keen to do it. And we, as I said, we gave it a glowing review. I think the, I, I was wondering about this. I think the other sort of European heavyweight of similar stature, um, which who is mentioned in, in Books of the Year, is Laszlo Krasnohorkai, uh-huh. who's, the, who's the Hungarian writer, who also writes in this incredibly sort of mellifluous, long-sentenced, ranging across cultures and nations and languages sort of sort of way. Um, there's, a, there's a great quote here from Paul Griffiths, who says, he, t- he talks about Krasnohorkai's novel, The World Goes On, the collection goes on to offer a series of stories that, whether undertaken or thwarted, arrive at transcendence. At the end, there is only one way to go, in what has to be the most powerful page written so far this century. Quite a claim. <laughs> it's quite a claim, isn't it? Uh, have you read him? Uh, I've dipped into bits of him, and I must yeah. say, I've, I've actually struggled a bit. I'm not, Lucy's I'm not, shaking I'm, her not, head I'm, not I'm not afraid. <laughs> I'm not afraid to admit that I've struggled. Yeah. But I don't think I've really given, a, given him a fair crack of the whip. He's written, there must be about six or seven novels in, transla- in English translation available now. I read so, um, uh, Sabo Below, is that yeah, what it's so, called? Yeah, so Sabo There Below, I There think. Below, that's it, I read that. And yeah, I mean, a similar thing to NR, actually, in that you sort of have to get into it. You have to get into the space of the novel and, and the rhythm of it and it carries you forward and sometimes sometimes it, it can it can strain a bit I yeah. suppose sometimes it, it can it can just become too much but I mean that's sort of the the point of it as well a lot of pressure with, on the translator then and um, Charlotte Mandel um, who that's has translated Ennard, yeah, uh, yeah uh, Matthias Ennard has, been, get... has been commended you know and the often, stars and beyond. And people sometimes, when I go to things, they talk about the uh, TLS, people come to me and say, you always must mention the translators. We always which do, I think yeah. we try to do. But yeah. do it, yeah. sim- of course. But, something, but, but make sure you really reflect, because if, if this book is, is, is affecting so many people in a way, that must be partially down to how she's rendered it. Mm, absolutely. I would think. Um, Harsh Sawney, when asked to do the books of the year, Toby, has uh, instead nominated podcasts and an HBO drama, a podcast S-Town, which you, of course, reviewed. I did. For the TLS. And Deuce, which is, I've never heard of this, an HBO drama, which is written by one of my favourite novelists, George Pelicanos. So do we think, and Lucy, this is probably for you as well, there's an argument that could be made that the best storytelling is not written down? Well, that's fair. You should say yes. Lucy says no, and I say well. Um, My my reaction to that is it's interesting that you say written down because actually one of the things that really struck me about S-Town was how written it is. I mean, it is a very beautifully crafted piece. It's non-fiction, but it's Mm -hmm. a beautifully crafted piece of writing. Of course, it's, you know, the the narrative is is put together with, you know, a lot of standard audio and naturalistic audio taken in narrative mode. But there's also this voiceover, which is very, very beautifully Mm -hmm. written. And the whole thing's constructed very, you know, it wasn't a particularly amazingly interesting point to make. But as I argue in my review, it is like a novel. Mm -hmm. It's very much got a novelistic. Exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. So, so, and The Wire, of course, which George Pelican also contributed to writing yeah. uh, was basically seen to be like uh, it was a Z- Zola for, for t- TV, wasn't it? Yeah. A sort of hyper-realistic novel. Absolutely. So yeah, I wouldn't sort of see these things as as, as, as unwritten. Perhaps. No. And novelists are involved. But I just, I mean, it just struck me that, that 
because everyone always said, oh, if Shakespeare is alive today, he'd be writing EastEnders is the sort of great cliche about that. There's presumably a move potentially to, to, to where novelists might try other f formats more easily now that George Pelicanos is doing this. He's not written a novel in a while, I don't think. Yeah, although I think, I mean, I think ever since Hollywood's existed, for example, you know, novelists have often tried their hand at... But they normally go there. In, 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 the, in the 50s and 60s, yeah, that there was, was that whole... the, all the novelists were writing for the BBC. But it was yeah. all rubbish. I mean, in Hollywood, though, it was rubbish, generally. That, that, that was interesting that they were, they were just, you know, when people... Who was the guy? We had a guy talking about this. Isherwood. Mm, goes off to Hollywood mm. and just hacks out rubbish, more or less. Well, you had there were authors like sort of James Salter. I think he wrote a few quite good screenplays. And but I mean, I know what you mean. It, it was always often kind it, was of, it was done for cash. Yeah, a lot of the time. I just wonder whether we get to it. Could, would, could we get to a point in ten years' time when the three greatest cultural artifacts are not are, are telly and. Podcast. That wouldn't preclude them having been written. No, that's that's, that, that's, that's kind true. of fine. I, by I, me if they are as long as they're exactly, good. I don't really agree care. Agree with Toe because they're, because they're written, and part of the reason because those episodes of the Juice were written by Pelicanos, weren't they? Have you and seen it? Not, have you seen it? No, no. And I've basically got a bad conscience about it because we should have covered it in the arts pages. Yeah. Is, is it a big thing? Yes, it is. As soon as I read about it, I, I set a reminder to myself. <laughs> to watch that. <laughs> to watch it. Well, it's funny you say that, Thin, because is there anything you're going to read now as a result of the recommendations? Well, yeah. So I, f I found these pages to be, yeah, very guilt-making. Yeah, all the sorts point. of There's all sorts of it's things. the whole point that, of them. That if I haven't already bought, I have bought and is, you know, that's sitting at the side of my, my bed currently unread. Go on. Uh, Margaret Drabble recommends Margherita Jacobina's, um, Jacobino's Portrait of a Family with a Fat Daughter. It's good published title, by that. Daedalus and translated by Judith Landry, uh, which sounds incredible. I mean, it tells the story of a Piedmontese family from a village. From a village in the foothill, foothills of the Alps. Um, that's basically where I grew up. It's part ah. memoir, part fiction. It will make me homesick. Although, I mean, they grew up in grinding, grinding rural poverty, which I have to admit I did not. I oh. know oh, you didn't. Um, not quite. Um, so that that is one. I mean, there are plenty. Paul Muldoon recommends um, Robert Lowell's, uh, sorry, a biography of, of Robert Lowell called Setting the River on Fire, which is a study of his genius and mania. Uh, which sounds very much like something. Well, I have it. I just haven't read it. <laughs> you should read it. Go on. Before, but any Lucy, any for you? What you? What, what would you read in the invite event that you would read something? In, in the nightly event of <laughs> reading something, it was there was something that I thought sounded interesting, which I would probably read, uh, buy, and not read. But I would like to read. It was recommended by Richie Robertson. I can't find it now. I'm Go on. Going. It was a. Comp Comparative History of European Literature. Oh, yeah. There we go. History of European Literature, the West and the World from Antiquity to the Present. Um, Sounds ambitious. Yeah, but, I mean, I think Richard Robertson's point is that, you know, that, that there's, he says that comparative literature is kind of being subsumed into world literature, or that's what Walter Cohen says, who wrote the book. Um, and it just has always seemed to me that, that comparative literature is almost the only way to do it. I just find it mm. sort of fatuous to study just English literature or just French literature as though it all evolved in, in a vacuum. Yeah. Well, you kind of often end up doing that, don't you? Yeah, but, but when people say English literature, in fact, they go, oh, you can have Joyce and you can have Henry James yeah. and you can have Oscar Wilde and you can have T.S. Eliot. It just is reasonably meaningless, I think. And if And like if you studied French literature without knowing anything about Shakespeare or Walter Scott, it wouldn't get you very far. Do you know what I mean? The, yeah. the, 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 I, I find it fascinating the way um, things influence each other. So I would mean to read that, and I probably wouldn't, <laughs> but I would certainly buy it. And also, Hilary Mantel is talking, actually, she's, this is not her book of the year, but she recommends Ulverton by Adam Thorpe, our own Adam Thorpe, yeah. which I have heard only wonderful things so about. Actually. 
Uh, and, and I he, would like he, to read that. Hilary Rantel then recommends his latest book. Yes. Yeah. Which, which came out. It's one of those things about missing children. Is that yes, right, called Missing Fay. It had an yeah. oddly similar plot line to the John McGregor novel, yeah, um, right. Reservoir 13. But it, it, and it's, yeah, it sounded fantastic. It's and Adam Thorpe writes very well for us yeah. of, of sort of life in... Yes, in, yeah, exactly. Can I read you my favourite bit though? Go on. I'm not going to read this book, but the bit I liked, the, the Books of the Year thing was by Tom Shippey. So it's about a book beyond the Northlands. It's about the Vikings. And he tells you about, he says, this tells you about the Vikings, how strange they were. Saga's about a family which continually interbred with trolls. <laughs> Archaeological discoveries which look like sex change magic. Sorcerous use of what the author decorously calls necropants. Necropants? Come on. That has got to be the best. <laughs> yeah. In fact, I do want to read the book. Yeah, exactly. I think we That's all want the one to I want that. to read. Well, there you are. Necropants. Toby, can you beat yeah. that? <laughs> I know. can't beat Necropants. What a question. <laughs> I know. Um, well, the, the book I've been meaning to read all year and haven't quite got around to, but has, has been nominated, I, th- I think possibly twice, definitely once, by DJ Taylor, is um, A Natural by Ross Raisin. Uh, it's, it's a novel. It's a football novel, and it is a rare yeah. football novel that is meant to be pretty good. Um, it's the only just, potentially football but, well, novel. Well, uh, there, there, there are a couple of David Pease has written one of the best and one of the worst football novels. Um, Red or Dead, terrible. Um, and then the Brian Clough uh, novel that he did was excellent. Anyway, yeah. it's just th- this one, Ross Raisin's A Natural, is described by DJ Taylor as a quiet but richly evocative account of a professional footballer's struggles with both his sexuality and the deeply unpromising terrain of a moribund League Two outfit hovering <laughs> on the brink of relegation, which is quite a sort of DJ tale. He quite likes the sort of the slightly obscure. But I enjoy reading books about football culture, and I particularly enjoy reading books about lower league football culture yeah. and the sort of the, you know, the, the the hopelessness and despair that often surrounds that with, with you know moments That's of excitement. It's a niche, it's a niche area, isn't yeah, it? It's not a main area football. of interest. Oh, no. Lots of not very good clubs. Yeah. <laughs> I do. Yeah. No, no, I think it's good. It's, <laughs> I, yeah, I, it's specific. I once read, a, in fact, I reviewed for the TLS many years ago, um, a biography of the second string goalkeeper, the reserve goalkeeper, I think it was of Grimsby Town. I'm gripped already. It's brilliant. Yeah. It's fantastic. <laughs> the is virtually leaving the room this year. As, as, as you it's fantastic. <laughs> right, we're going to move on. I'm, I'm, I'm going to pick uh, Dawn Watch by Maya Jasanoff, which is about Conrad. And according to Francis Wilson, Conrad foresaw the rise of terrorism, globalisation and nationalism. And I don't know very much about Conrad. I always read a bit and then went back to Henry James. And so I'd quite like to read a bit more of him. Have you read The Secret Agent? I have, but a long time ago. You're nodding, are you feeling... I I feel the comrade pain as well. I've read two or three and I just feel like there's something wrong with me because I just haven't loved it. Do you know Graham (laughs) Greene? I find the same with Graham Greene. I quite like Graham Greene. I'm with you on Graham Greene. I read Graham Greene too early and then just thought... Same here. Because you get you get it as a sort of teenager, don't you? And mm. then I just put it I'll put it down. I think I would. And you read yeah. it about the, and then the affair, and you, and you go, well, what was the oh, problem? Oh, no, the end of the affair is beautiful. Just... No, that's a beautiful, beautiful book. Uh, yes, I love no, that that's book. what I meant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I did it with Power and the Glory. I think I just didn't, just didn't really get. I was just too young. Didn't really get it. Right, we're going to move on because we're going to in a moment. We're going to come back and we're going to make our own recommendations for books we've actually read. <laughs> I've already used one of mine up. Well, you have to use another one. Get, oh, no. get you read one in the yeah. brain. <laughs> yeah, get thinking. Now, we must return to our very own Books of the Year, which is always a nerve-wracking moment for literary journalists, I'm looking at everyone here, who never read quite as much as you would suspect. Who can conceal their ignorance with the most aplomb? We shall see. Let's go round in order. I will go last... Who wants to go first? Lucy, you <laughs> sighed the loudest. I think you're going to go first. 
Books of the year, Lucy, which books, you have read. Books I've read. I'm happy to report that I have read some books this year. Yes. And the ones I really, really liked, one of them was The Seventh Function of Language. Ah, Bine. Which was Extracted just... The, in the Times Literary extract, Supplement. Very good. Yes, of course it was. <laughs> um, and it was just the absolute business. About Bart. About Bart and, um, and how he died and whether there was a kind of sinister plot involving all sorts of um, odd people with Umberto Eco at, at kind of brilliantly at the centre of it all. It was really, really good fun. Is it funny? It's really it's funny. It? Yeah, and it's really clever. And it also, it stays on the right side of, it's not kind of so up itself. You think, oh, this is unbearable. And, you know, um, I, I don't, I know a bit about that world, but not loads. Yeah. There's a brilliant, brilliant bit in America when all, like if you ever did, you know, if you did English at university, then almost everybody that was on your curriculum at some point, they all turn up and basically have a big fight. It's really, really funny. And yeah. there's the trip to China, isn't there, where uh, wasn't Bart writing a, um, a series of observations about travelling to China? Isn't that in the book as well? No, they don't, the China's not in oh, is the it not? book, is it? I don't think oh, so. I thought it was. Sorry. He dies, might have mentioned it. He dies, he's hit by a bread van, isn't he? Laundry, laundry van. Yeah, that's how it. That's that's, how it that's, the open. And that's, yeah. that, that's, that's yeah. true. It, it is true. Yeah. But, but then yeah, they're yeah. saying there was a conspiracy behind it. Well, it's wonderful because it's a, it's a wonderful kind of piss. Can I say piss take? Yeah. Of um, Umberto Eco as well. Yeah. Of a lot of what he does of that thing whereby there, there's at least two versions of the story, and if you're deeply paranoid, you believe one version. Yeah. And if you're not, you believe the other one. He was on his way to meet Mitron. Wasn't he? He just had lunch. Oh, with he just had lunch, and, and that is true as well. Yes. So there, yeah, there was true. a kind of political yeah, yeah, angle. Yeah. To so it. Like all these things, there's, the, there's a nugget of plausibility. Absolutely, that's what it. I mean. You could, you, you could, you know, you could go either way. And he takes it, and he's got a very good straight man. He's got a, a policeman who has to investigate it. So that solves the problem of what if I've never heard of any of these people and yeah. I don't know what the deal is because the policeman is a brilliantly he, Foucault's in it a lot and he keeps going and the and the slaphead in the leather jacket walks over <laughs> and he sort of has to understand semiology, doesn't he? He's, yeah, he's and they kind of no... explain it to him and so, and sometimes he says, oh yeah, well okay, that's interesting, and sometimes he goes, well, it's just rubbish, yeah. you know. It's I mean, it's really really good. That's one of them. Go on. Um, Another one that was just very interesting, and I will get eyes will roll at me for this, but was the one that I read for Toby by China Mieville. Oh yes, it's not. It just was terribly interesting. He's always so interesting, and it was a bonkers book. And of course, you were a big SF fan. Yes, so this isn't really SF particularly. A bigger, a bigger China fan. I'm yeah. a big China fan, but you know, um, yeah, and it just was really interesting. And I, and it's called the Last Days of New Paris. Is it? Yes. <laughs> I haven't written that down. I'm just trying to remember. No, it is. It's from the my Last head. Days of New Paris. And... Um, and the other one, which in fact we will have reviewed next week, and I'm talking to the author, it yes. is Nomon by Nick Harkaway, which has come out, I think week or two ago and we're which gonna, is brilliant and you've interviewed him so we're going to play a bit of it on this podcast next week yes yes, uh, yes. and that's si- SF because we've got a great science fiction uh, edition of the paper next week yeah, yeah. We, re- we review the book in that edition yes. and do yeah, we like yeah. it uh, yes, well, yes, yeah, yeah, no, yes, we did like it. Yeah. Stuart Kelly's reviewed it, and yeah, without giving too much away, he absolutely loves it. Yeah. And you <laughs> Sorry, and I absolutely love it as well. And yes, I'm going to mention Terry Pratchett. <laughs> I've noticed your studios thus far haven't mentioned. Terry no, Pratchett. no, no, I just hadn't got there. I knew you were going to make me. Um, no, the thing that I've been reading with great pleasure, I've been reading it on the commute actually, and um, 
my one of my children is reading it at the same time. That's great. To, so it's we're kind of scrapping thing. over who gets the book. It's Terry Pratchett, which had always seemed very off-putting. The terrible covers. You know yeah. the person you had on the podcast last week, Rowan Mateson? Yeah. She said, everyone says, don't judge a book by its cover. And of course we do, mm. all the time. And this is the same thing. The See, I think pa- the covers were aimed squarely at teenage boys who read fantasy fiction, because they're all very trolls and sort mm. of knobbly They bits. are, yeah, yes, I guess. So I'm sure they knew what they were doing. But they were off-putting for me, for instance. But then I just find it absolutely delightful. And I, I, I read a lot of Terry Pratchett when I was young and loved it. And he, he is a genuinely brilliant British humorous writer i mean yeah it's like, i mean it's like woodhouse you yeah, know exactly you know right. that you're going to get you know it's going to be funny and kind of un- it's more unexpected than woodhouse because it's a larger world yeah that's true um and which one are you reading then i'm on eric at the moment i started in the middle and then i went back to the beginning. can i give a, a quote from terry pratchett mm-hmm. he says fantasy writing is an exercise bicycle for the mind it might not take you anywhere but it tones up the muscles that can and just yep. in case people get a bit snooty about Terry Pratchett, the stuff's really funny. It's satirical. The 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 stuff around the guards, the the City Watch is brilliant. Yep. The stuff around the witches, which is a kind of pastiche of Macbeth and things like that, yep. is brilliant. At the moment, on the one I'm on, he's doing a kind of gentle inverted look at the Odyssey, and um, but it's all very lightly done, and it's just and it's very funny. I mean, and it's very silly. You've got to be able to handle a large amount of silliness. If you don't like that, then you won't like it. Thankfully, I can I can do Me that. Me too. And so we're happy. Me too. Lovely. Lovely. Toby? Um, yes, I have some books that I have read and like very much. Um, <laughs> Go on. I think my novel of the year yeah. um, is... Neil, as fiction editor, as is, fiction is editor, important. Well, to me at least, um, is Neil Mukherjee's A State of Freedom, ah. which, again, we extracted. Um, I, I was very sad that this didn't get on the Booker anything list. Has Hirsch surely recommended it? I don't think so. There's no one. There's no one. I don't think. In fact, yes. No one's. No. Has it been a bit underrated? No one's recommended it. It didn't make the book a long list. um, And I just thought it was beautiful. Absolutely brilliantly written. Um, It's it's this sort of series of five interlocking stories uh, about modern day India, about uh, return uh, migration, both in terms of leaving India or kind of internally. And it's. I don't have you know anything particularly erudite to offer it or offer on it at the moment, other than, other than to say it was just it is brilliantly, brilliantly written. And the bit and we had was about the bear. It was about the bear. It's, it's very, really sad. It's very sad. It's this very sad story about how this sort of this bear turns up in this village in this very very remote village, and it's a cub, and about how it's turned into a dancing bear by this sort of nerdy well who thinks he's going to make some money out of it, and how he sort of goes on the road and he he sort of becomes responsible for the bear in a way that he doesn't expect and he sort of has to kind of it's the bear sort of becomes a metaphor for his conscience as well and his sort of his inability to free himself he sort of becomes shackled to the bear but it's very very beautifully done and uh, yeah i was i was sad that it didn't it didn't Funny get that get seem. a bit more yeah uh, attention um other than that uh, reservoir 14 uh reservoir 13, 13. For, I've, I've written down 14 but it's reservoir 13 that must be the sequel yes exactly well there actually there is a sequel which is a prequel called the oh. reservoir tapes uh, which is coming out at the end of this year, and again, which we are hoping... In the, we are, I believe we are. We the are. first issue in January. We, we are, are hoping to run an extract it, from... Because it's for Radio 4, wasn't yeah, it? And it's, exactly. it's, it's to be read out, little short stories that relate to it, and we're, we're going to extract them. But, yes, so, but the actual the, the, the novel itself, which came out this year, is, is Reservoir 13, John McGregor... Um, which was on the book and long list, but not the shortlist. Uh, it made... No, it made, made the shortlist, it didn't just win, didn't yeah. win, and it's utterly, utterly brilliant. Um, and he tweeted a, something quite dry about that, I think, did he? He's a funny tweeter. Yeah, yeah he... Um, he tried to... Like he, he wasn't bothered. Yeah, 
can't remember which meme he used, but it was it was from some popular yeah. sitcom, and it was very funny. Um, How modern! It was very. Yeah, exactly. He's very yeah, exactly. He's a meme, it's, meme it's, artist. It's a very. It's a. It's, it's a very very beautifully. Again, just I, it's the quality of the writing that really yeah. struck me about this, and it's about this disappearance in a, in a village. This girl goes missing, and over the course of thirteen years, we sort of revisit different characters and sort of take this temperature test of, of sort of the whole village and the way in which life evolves. And it's set in the kind of the damp, dark peak district. Isn't yes, it? Yeah. it is. And it's just, yeah, it's brilliantly done. So there's that. Go on, um, one more. One, one more. more. Oh, God, what am I going to do? Um, okay, uh, something slightly left field. It's a book by a guy called Michael Frank, called The Mighty Franks. It's a memoir of his very, very strange upbringing in L.A., he was one of, I think, three or four children, and his aunt um, didn't have children, and she sort of half stole him from his parents. But yeah, they had this strange setup: the father and the mother, and then the aunt and the uncle were the sort of relevant sister and brother of the parents, if that makes sense. Okay. Um, and it's just, it's just again, it's very, very well written, and it's a very strange look at um, sort of a period of LA life and also just a, a, a weird family and how they function. It's, it's the era of the misery memoir, isn't it, really? We're living this one's not it. misery, it's, it's more kind of... Is it funny? It's, it's, it is very funny, but yeah. in, a, in a sort of disquieting way. But, I mean, we, we could fill the pages of the TLS, I think, over and over again with reviews of well-written memoirs about someone's faintly esoteric life. Crying while swimming. Yeah, crying while swimming. I mean, in fact, Kaz, uh, uh, who does memoirs for us, she says she's got another review of some more swimming memoirs. <laughs> yes. Water yeah. biographies. Yeah. I mean, yeah. so that's a thing. Mm. Like, I think we've so. done like four or five. And so if, yeah. if, if you're a woman and you like swimming and you haven't got a book deal... <laughs> Why And you're not? feeling a bit sad. Yeah, what are you doing? I mean, the one lesson from this podcast should be at least, you know, make a proposal. Yeah. Try. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the market seems to be, to be there. But I, I do think memoir, it does seem to be... Maybe it's always been this, but it just feels that that's where the great proliferation of books are at the moment. Well, memoir in general. I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, well, yeah, and I mean, it's definitely it's 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 not a particularly new thing, but it's it's certainly been seeping into fiction for a very very long time. Yeah. You know, the kind of yeah, the yeah. auto fiction and the, the and the fictionalization of non-fiction. The, I mean, yeah. how many times do you read a, a, a non-fiction book and the opening is self-consciously novelistic? Yeah. You know, I was talking to, to David Horsfall about the book about the medieval period came in and I said, well, we know that the opening sentence is going to be how cold and rainy it was on a specific day in the 14th century. And you flick it open and he said he was standing on the bare hills and the rain had started to fall and it was cold. And you think, well, that's be- the, the novelisation of non-fiction is really a thing, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I wonder if some of that is about voices that haven't weren't, weren't heard before. People saying, listen to this. Like Roxane Gay's book, Hunger, and Gabrielle Dédier, the French lady, Grossophobie. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't mean just them, but I wonder if people are, you know, people are now ready to listen to voices that weren't Do you think female particularly? Before. Maybe, yeah, yeah. I wonder if they make money. I mean, I wonder if they, what's the economy of this really? Because there is a, there is this proliferation of them. Do they not pay much for them? And and they hope to maybe the, the economy is you don't pay that much for them, and you hope one just hits. I think that in, is in general the the, the plan. The plan. The plan in publishing in all art. Thea, go on. What's your recommendation? Um, well. Uh, Adam Thurwell stole my two recommendations. Adam, no. Adam we, we, could all, we could all say that. <laughs> no, but he did. So um, the collected essays of Elizabeth Hardwick. Uh, which um, you're reviewing. You can't count anyway because you're reviewing that in the TLS. Well, no, but the reason that I can no. is because... contrary. <laughs> 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 because, um, and actually it's the same with, with the other book that I was going to mention, which is South and West, um, which was in uh, recently published notebooks of Joan Didion. 
um, is because reading both of those then just can't help but send you back to everything that you've ever read and, and all of the things that you had read so long ago, like the novels of, of um, these two writers, for example, yeah. that you'd completely forgotten about. So it becomes something else. It, it becomes, it com- becomes you know, bigger than just one book. And so we've got a very long a piece from you about to appear in the Tillis. Yes, I'm sorry. Yes, yeah, well, we should, I think we should have you on the podcast. <laughs> well, uh, I have to be there anyway. Yeah, so you might as well talk about <laughs> Two birds, one stone. Uh, how, how familiar will people be with Elizabeth Hardwick, do you think? Uh, Who aren't in the sort of American literary... Scene. I don't know, actually. That's that's a tough one. Uh, she's one of the important critics of her generation. Many people will, I'm afraid, still know her foremost yep. as as the wife of uh, the second wife of, of Robert Lowell. But she is a brilliant critic, and she did something for the American essay that, if she had not done, we possibly would not have writers like Joan Didion and really? and, um, and all that school. So I I very I put them very much together in my mind, if not on my chaotic bookshelves, yeah. as having just done so much for, for, for literary criticism and re- really reinvigorated it. Um, there's a there's a, a thing that I think both of them do, which which I love, which is to to start writing. And, you know, this is this is one of those things, you know, don't don't do it at home um, because it's very difficult to pull off. But where you, you start writing without necessarily knowing how you feel about a thing um, or what you think about a thing um, and you discover it as you go. And so you see them having that enlightenment yeah and that's what she does and that's what that's what um, Hardwick does a lot of the time it's not not always successfully I'm you know I'm not blindly uh, devoted to either uh, but when they succeed they succeed all the better because yeah. because of that you can see the kind of the, the, the conflict and, and the working out that has led them to to whatever conclusion and obvi- obviously it's not always a conclusion quite often it's it's just a a, a kind of a, a laying out of things that sort of jar slightly but yeah taken as a whole there's a great definition of, of essay writing which is taking an idea for a walk exactly and it's yeah. that kind of it doesn't necessarily exactly. have to but you, you have to kind of work it's work out the exactly and what, what like, um, taking a line for a walk as well you had they have it in art don't they yeah do it's they clay isn't it is it yeah. Paul clay yeah oh, I haven't heard yeah. of that one yeah, yeah, I like that taking a line for a walk yeah. and what Joan Didion does in, in South and West is she is she sort of take takes a takes an idea for a drive so it's a sort of it's a it's a road trip a road trip really i mean she doesn't she doesn't allude to the the the, the vehicular <laughs> kind of center of it very much but she travels uh you know from she starts in new orleans and again you know she doesn't really have a, a clear aim of where she's going but she'll travel through mississippi and alabama and louisiana and there's always the, the, the pull of home which yeah, for her great, was was california and so you you get a very strong sense of place and is there anyone you want to recommend that you've not stolen from Adam Thurwell? Well, I've given you three books. Yeah. I've read three books this year. Yeah. <laughs> it is, yeah. it's quite a lot. Yeah, I mean, That's uh, it for the year. Yeah. I won't read anything until what, January. I, I can't just imagine how devastated you were when you had your three <laughs> books that you actually have read and then you opened the TLS Books of the Year and Adam Thurwell <laughs> has also read them. Along and with the, many others, I would imagine. Uh, exactly. Yeah. And they've stolen your thunder and making it seem that you're just copying him. Yeah, well, that's awkward. <laughs> yeah, but we know you haven't. You've written this fantastic uh, piece about uh, Hardwick. So you know for a fact so, that yeah. I have read it. So you, you have definitely read it. Well, uh, shall I do mine? Mm. Why I'm no longer talking to white people about race, which I hate the title of. I hated the title of before I read it. We reviewed it, which made me get mm-hmm. it. Uh, did Bernie Evaristo review it for us? Uh, yes. Um, and it's by Rene Edo Lodge. It started out as a blog about uh, race, and the reason I really like it is. 
it just makes you think a lot about structural racism. And the title is slightly, it's untrue because she spends her life, I suspect, talking to white people about race. And as has a published result. a book about yeah. it. About, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, it makes you think about structural racism in a really interesting way. And there's a couple of quotes in it that do linger. The one I, I think I've said on this podcast that the idea of reimagining working class in Britain, ways you've got to re- stop thinking of a, an old man in a white cap and start thinking about a black woman pushing a pram. And I think it's really clever, and it's um, it's quite a sparky, interesting book. And Bernie liked it as well. It was it was a good it was a good review we had of it. Yes, she loved it. On vaguely similar lines, Claire Wills did a book called Lovers and Strangers, which is almost an oral history of post-war immigration in Britain, and it's just full with stories of what it was like to be um, in Britain in the 50s and 60s. And it's really depressing, to be honest, in the sense that, as she says very early on, it was a great experiment. We kind of welcomed people because our country was completely buggered. We had no one to do the jobs. We didn't really want black people to come, but we kind of let them in the end. We didn't really want Jewish people to come. We'd rather have had Baltic people who weren't Jewish, but we kind of let the Jewish people in the end. And actually what happened was we pretty much as a nation failed to welcome them properly and the race riots which is not quite the correct term so they were called race riots that were happening in the 50s in london were just white people trying to attack black people and the conclusion she draws and it's a long book and it's full of stories but the conclusion she kind of draws in the end is it was a great social experiment and it failed um, and there's quite a lot of parallels to today when you you see it, which you don't labour too much. But I was just very struck by you know the Windrush generation and all of that. You kind of think, in some ways, is this great multicultural moment for Britain, and I'm sure it is in lots of ways. You know, my wife's family came across in the Windrush generation, and they have very happy lives, and they are really happy. And there's clearly lots of success stories, but. I suspect we were. You know, there's a great Daily Mirror editorial which said why we should send everyone home because they come over here and they use our our health service and they probably get more rations than they deserve and mm. all sorts of stuff that you kind of see. And it was just easy to think it was this great moment in time for Britain and I, it probably wasn't. I, I, partly as well, I think, in comparison to the States, which has obviously got a completely different history, but I think sometimes we think, well, hey, you know, it's the 50s and 60s, I'm sure bad stuff happened here, but we weren't like the States. And yeah. I think that can sometimes lull British people into a full sense of security about our own yeah. terrible attitudes. Well, it's funny enough, Malcolm X gets so smethic in, which is a place in Birmingham, in 1963 elected a Tory MP whose uh, slogan was, if you want a nigger for a neighbour, vote Labour. Uh, he was elected into Parliament. Harold Wilson, who was the Prime Minister, then said it was a disgrace, but he was elected. Anyway, Malcolm X, visit because of all of this, comes to Birmingham. And he stands there, Malcolm X does, and said, I came here because I've heard that black people are being treated in England like they are in America and like the Jews were in Nazi Germany. And that was Britain in 1963. It's not that long ago that this stuff was happening. That's the beginning of the so-called wonderful swinging 60s, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So that's really good. Um, Lincoln in the Bardo... Which, oh, we extract, yes. which we extracted. Well, it means we're getting behind our choices, which yeah, is what exactly. we should do as literary uh, editors. Yeah. So. But George Saunders it won the Booker Prize, which is basically an endorsement of uh, Toby's literary judgment. <laughs> that's, <laughs> how I, that's how I took it. Uh, but it's a fantastically interesting book uh, that was well worth the win, I think. And talking of racists, I read for the second time only Evelyn Moore's Decline and Fall. <laughs> Yeah, it is a and it has a racist bit in it, but it is a fantastic book. It's so funny, and I read it ahead of um, interviewing someone about the TV adaptation with Jack Whitehall, which mm. was quite good. 
Um, but the book is really, really funny and is sort of PG Woodhouse with a bad hangover, which is kind of all I'd want a book to be. <laughs> he is annoyingly very funny. It is, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, he was probably a horrible man, wasn't he? I think a oh, vile, yeah. vile man, but he was a, he was a very good writer. We had a that very great, funny writer. We had that great book review about war where he did things like when his son was dying of... Um, did he shoot himself accidentally, his son? Anyway, his son was dying and Evelyn War stopped his allowance... And I also like the fact that Evening Wars, a memoir of his honeymoon in American title was A Bachelor Abroad. Yes, it's, it's, it's fantastic. The English title's Labels. You must read it. It's absolutely brilliant. And um, he, you have absolutely no idea um, that he's on honeymoon. Um, it's, and, you know, he sort of goes, goes to brothels in, in Morocco and various <laughs> other places. Yeah, and you just think he's sort of with his mates. And then you, you sort of realise afterwards that he was on honeymoon. With Evelyn. With Evelyn. With Evelyn. With she Evelyn. She Evelyn. Um, and he hates everywhere. Yeah, I think he just—he's. I think he describes. He says of Vesuvius, nothing in nature uh, can ever be considered quite so revolting as a volcano. <laughs> yes, very strange. Funny thing to hate. Um, thank you all very much. That's all we've got time for this week. Our thanks go to Toby Lishtig, Lucy Disney Dallas, as she forever will not be known not be known uh, do go to the-tls.co.uk or your local shop for this week's edition of the paper which also covers such topics as the phenomenon of forgetfulness the devilish work of algorithms Robert Louis Stevenson in Samoa and the phenomenon of forgetfulness well done uh, next week we have a science fiction special of the TLS that's SF not sci-fi as I have learnt so set your blasters to stun until then from Thea and from me goodbye Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.